somebody who's written two books and done four major reports, there is more than a labor of love. It's also a labor of masochism, too, I think. <laughs> Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Belowski, and I'm a second-year MPP student. What a week it has been. Uh, You know, when the presidential election was called on Saturday morning, there was about a 24-hour period where it felt like we were moving on. There was anger and disappointment on one side and joy and relief on the other. But despite the setting at Four Seasons Landscaping, it seemed like we finally knew the direction in which we were headed. And um, yeah, I know. Silly me thinking this would go smoother than expected, but the last few days I think have really shown the extent of the divisiveness in our country, and and today's episode tackles something that I believe is at the foundation of our polarization, and it's where we get our news. My co-host today is first-year MPP student Marissa Lemma, and since we're doing the whole virtual thing, I haven't really gotten to meet many classmates in our first-year cohort, so I was excited to get to know Marissa. She's actually written a book called The Marching Women, Inspiring Stories from Young Women in Public Policy. Policy, and she also contributes to the Virginia Policy Review. Marissa recently uh, published a blog post on mail-in voting. We'll link to both her book and, and the blog post in the show notes. And then Marissa and I had a chance to speak with Professor Penny Abernathy, who is the Knight Chair in Journalism and Digital Media Economics at the University of North Carolina. Professor Abernathy, she's had a fascinating career in journalism, starting off as a reporter, working at various newspapers before getting her MBA and ultimately serving in executive roles at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Over the last decade, she's devoted her time and research to the decline of local news publications, and she wrote a book called Saving Community Journalism, The Path to Profitability, and recently published a report titled News Deserts and Ghost Newspapers, Will Local News Survive? We'll link to both of those in the show notes as well. But this this is a topic that I don't really think gets enough attention. And Professor Abernathy is the perfect person to help understand both the problem and the potential policy solution. Marissa and I, I know, learned a lot from the conversation with Professor Abernathy, and I hope uh, you all will too. So uh, let's get to it. Let's meet Marissa. I I should probably timestamp this one too. We're doing this on Sunday afternoon. It's the day after um, you know, at least media outlets have called the end of the, the presidential election. And so I'm just curious, how, how, are, how are you feeling? Honestly, so relieved that it's over and we don't have to wait anymore. And um, I know I was watching the speeches that Biden and Harris gave last night. And it was just for me being like a woman and seeing a woman now as the vice president elect, it was, it, it was really incredible. Like, I think regardless of politics, it was just a historic and incredible moment. Well, I, you know, I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but um, you wrote a book. So you wrote a book in um, um, recently called The Marching Women that just came out uh, a few months ago. And it's about how women can get into politics. And so, you know, I, I imagine, and, and I think that this is, um, I think a lot of people had that, that reaction, right? Um, you know, that, that just just what a historic moment that was. And I think that regardless of party affiliation, I think there's a lot in, that, that's happened in the last week, just the, the amount of participation, the fact that we have the first woman vice president, the first um, 
black woman vice president, the first South Asian woman vice. I mean, just a lot of barriers. I think there's so much that I think that that we can be proud of. I agree for sure. It's it's incredible, and there's more women in Congress and in the government than ever before, and so it's just a it's a very exciting time to be a woman in in politics or in policy. Why did you write the book? Um, so for me, a lot of it stemmed from having witnessed the 2016 election and um, how like Hillary Clinton lost, which I personally believed in um, in her a lot. And as as a woman, it was really um, it was really disheartening to witness that and to have seen like a qualified woman lose to another white man. And um, it sort of felt like I, my voice had been taken away. And then I got the chance in January of the following year to go to the Women's March on Washington. And like seeing how many people were there and how many how many women were like making their voices heard reminded me that like I we do have power and we do have voices and we need to use them to create change. And so um, several years later, when I got the opportunity to write this book, I knew that I wanted to write about women in policy because that was something that was just so close to my own experiences. And um, I wanted to encourage other women to go into policy. So. Um... I bought your book. Oh, thank you. Um, and 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 so you you talk you know I think what's so amazing about it is I think that you you talk about national figures, but you also talk about things that are at, at a really kind of a more local level. And you know this is something because I, I didn't do I I didn't have a politics career coming to Baton, and so there's just so many ways I think to get involved, and it's so helpful for people to kind of lay out all of those ways and how you can. Um, can make a difference because it's, um, you know, for me, I just, I didn't know what was out there and I had no idea where to look to figure out what was out there. And so I, you know, I, I thought it was just really interesting the way that you kind of, you, you talk about some pretty big figures, but also um, some folks who are making a difference at the local level as well. Yeah. Change really does start from the bottom at the local levels and it's easier to get a foot in the door there. It's honestly even easier to see change happen because you don't have to fight with as many people to make things happen. And so I think focusing on starting locally is super important because then you can see change in your own community before you broaden it to the, the wider country or world. I think that is an excellent, um, and I, I want to put a pin in that because our guest is Penny Abernathy, who, who focuses on local journalism and really making a local difference. But before we kind of introduce our conversation with Professor Abernathy, um, I'm just curious, you know, why uh, you wrote a book, you saw all the ways to get involved in policy. Why, why did you make your way to Baton? So I, I went to William and Mary for my undergrad and I studied government there. And so I got a lot of the like, um, here's how political institutions work and here's how things happen, like here's how laws are passed and things like that. But I somehow managed to avoid taking like quantitative classes. So I had all this knowledge, but I didn't know how to actually apply it to do something that like to actually create that change that I wanted to create. And so um, that's what made me decide to go get an MPP because I I saw that there was a focus on quantitative skills that I could then use to like combine with my undergrad degree to make the change that I wanted to see. And Baton in particular, I was really just drawn to the community here. I I felt like connected to people even before I ever applied when I came to the open house last November. And so I this program just made sense. How has your cohort, um, the first year cohort, and you know, we last year we had our kind of a semester and a half that was in person and 
on grounds. And for you all, this has been all virtual. How is how has that experience been for you all? So it's definitely been a little strange. Sometimes I'll meet people like I'll see people at Grit and they're like like, oh, I've actually never seen you except on Zoom. And so it's a little weird, but I, I still feel like we're all pretty connected because we have a Slack channel that we talk in all the time and we've done like virtual happy hours and um, we've still bonded over how hard our classes are and like how much we hate the pandemic. And so it's it's definitely strange not having like many people in, in person, but I think as a cohort, we're still maybe even like stronger as a cohort because we're all going through this together and starting in like this weird virtual world. I'd never even thought about what that dynamic would be like, you know, cause I think everyone can relate to, um, you know, hearing someone's voice, right. Or, or whether or not you're communicating over text or over phone, but just still actually seeing the person's face, but not actually seeing them in person and then doing that for the first time. I, I can't have, I never, I just didn't even think about that dynamic. Yeah, it was definitely interesting. Um, it actually just happened to me last week. I like met someone in person for the first time and I was like, wait a second, I know you, but I don't know you. Um, so it's, it's definitely interesting. And like, you have no concept of like how, how tall people are or like, I personally am really short. So like, I think people are constantly surprised cause they only see me on zoom. And then like, they're like, wait a second, you're really short. And so like, it's just an interesting it's an interesting thing. You feel like you know people, but you don't know people. We had a guy in our Virginia politics class and he had just started a job and he was, he actually made mention he was six, eight. And he was like, I don't think anyone knows that I'm six, eight. So the first time I go to the office, it's just going to be, you know, people are going to be kind of taken aback, but um, yeah, such as, you know, and, and that's the thing too, you know, it's um, COVID is kind of, it's hung over everything that we're, we're doing, even with the celebrations last night, you know, you're always in the back of your head, like, oh my gosh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And, and I think that that also has had a big impact on the topic where we're going to speak with uh, Professor Abernathy about, and that's about kind of the erosion of local news. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed, we spoke with Professor Abernathy on, on Friday. So it's before the election was called, but this is a topic, the erosion of local news, and, and it's something that doesn't get a lot of attention, but she is, she has a great background. She has been a reporter. She has been an executive with the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think she knows like kind of all angles of this, of this business. And, and I, um, I don't know, I, I learned a lot from her. And it's also, as we see, you know, there are people getting information from all over the place and that erosion of local news, it, it, it feels kind of foundation to a lot of the polarization. And, and a lot of the division that that we're kind of seeing right now. Yeah, she had a lot of really awesome things to say on the subject. Um, and it was like before this interview, I had never really thought about the erosion of local news. And it's it's something that is really important and is a little bit exacerbated by this pandemic that's going on right now. So it was a great, a great conversation. Well, let's go ahead. Let's get to it. And here's our um, discussion with Professor Abernathy, but also be sure, check out Marissa's book, uh, The Marching Women. Uh, you can find it, you find it online. And also Marissa writes for the Virginia Policy Review, and she has some posts up, up about, um, has a post up on our blog, The Third Rail. So be sure to check that out as well. But here is our conversation with Professor Abernathy. So we, we actually start all of our podcast interviews with, I, I think, what I thought was a pretty simple question, but I think it's a loaded question and probably even, especially this week, given um, I probably should put a timestamp. We're doing this on Friday, November 6th at two o'clock and the 
the results of the election look like we know what's going on or, or where it's headed, but it's not hasn't been officially called. And so I'm just curious, you know, after after this week, how are you feeling? Um, well, I guess I'm, I have the same concerns I had uh, and first spot, sp spotted in 2016, which is uh, we've lost a tremendous amount of local news, both we've lost local news organizations, we've lost local reporters over the last decade to 15 years. And that has an immense uh, uh, impact on what we know about the candidates who are running for office, everything from local races up to uh, uh, the, the national races, the Senate races. So let me give you one example. Uh, I'm in the, what was the North Carolina 9th Congressional District. Um, we did not have a representative in Congress for almost a year between 2018 election and 2019. Uh, it is a gerrymandered district that runs from the suburbs of Charlotte, North Carolina to the suburbs of uh, Fayetteville and Fort Bragg. Uh, and there was election fraud committed in one of the counties by a Republican <laughs> working for the, uh, working for the Republican candidate. So it was significant. It was unusual. I mean, it's one of those unusual cases where you can actually point to election fraud with evidences there. And as a result, we didn't have a representative. What's more concerning is in the days leading up to it, I was very concerned because you could not get really good information on either candidate. Uh, you know, if you, uh, my local paper, I look back on the local paper, the local paper barely t covered it at all. Uh, it made a mention somebody was coming to town to speak to the Rotary Club, uh, made a couple of mentions and there was an insert after basically 40% of people had already voted that said, here's the, uh, that, you know, which the uh, League of Women Voters usually puts out, here's where everybody stands on the issues. But there just was no way to find the information that you normally need uh, to make a wise decision uh, about that. And so, I mean, if you think about it, at the same time, I couldn't find any good information on who was running for the school board <laughs> or who was running for county commissioner. So in many ways, the choice of the school board, the county commissioner, and certainly our congressional candidate or even our state uh, leg legislatures have more ability to affect the quality of our lives on a day-to-day -day basis than who the president of the United States is. And that to me is why I got interested in kind of tracking what was going on in local news because what we're looking at is something that has the, uh, the ability to significantly impact our democracy and our society in the 21st century. You know, kind of along those, along those lines, I I've, and I'm not sure if, the, if this is a direct, um, but I think it has something to do with it. But there's been a big focus about the polling and how, how off the polling is. And you know what I think is really interesting is that in the lead up, Ann Seltzer in Iowa put out a poll that was really kind of on the money. And she is based in Des Moines. Like she is in Des Moines. She is a local source. She knows that community. And you see, you know, all these, whether it's New York Times, Siena, it's a lot of these national um, that, that are, they don't know the communities that they're polling. And I, I just wonder, um, you know, as we were preparing for this conversation, um, you know, if how this lack of local resources is even playing into, into that aspect. No, I think it, it definitely is. So I don't live in, uh, around Chapel Hill, even though I teach in Chapel Hill, I actually live on the family farm, which is about 80 miles south of Chapel Hill. It's in one of the poorest counties in the uh, state. Uh, and, you know, there's just something about being in the local grocery store 
and standing in line to see what people are reading on the, uh, to see the number of signs that are in people's yards. You just get a much better feel of, of what is going on in the ground when you're actually there. Uh, and I think that that is what we've really lost in two ways with local news. One, we've lost those local newspapers, those weeklies and small dailies that served all small and mid-sized communities and basically gave us the information that we looked to in the past. And let's face it, regional television doesn't get in there. And many of these communities are so small, they don't have digital uh, outlets that are just dying to come in and open up shop there. So you really do depend on the local newspaper to provide you with that information. And then there's been a double, a secondary loss. So the secondary loss is the contraction of the regional newspapers like the Des Moines Register, like the Richmond paper, like the, the, the Raleigh News and Observer in our uh, state. I mean, I'm fairly certain that when the Raleigh Observer had a, a newsroom staff of upwards of about 300 people, they roamed all through Eastern North Carolina and probably, I can almost bet <laughs> that they would have stumbled across this guy who was going around and basically filling in the absentee ballots uh, for the Republican candidate. He had been accused of doing it before. And I mean, it's just like when you don't have feet on the ground, so to speak, when you don't have reporting uh, ability to cover things and come across those things, we lose as citizens. And I do think you're, you're raising a very good point about Ann Seltzer being there, knowing it. You know, uh, mo many of my colleagues at UNC were stunned when Trump pulled off the uh, uh, win in 2016. Those of us who live in the outside of the major metro areas knew a month ahead of time it was very likely just by what we saw, what we observed, and by what we we kind of know is accepted. So I think polling is very interesting. Um, and one of the things I read recently, and I think it, it explains why the polls were so off in Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, maybe even Pennsylvania, but not that off down in the South, right? It's just more acceptable in certain communities to say, I'm voting for Trump than it is in the Midwest, where there's, there's still a societal kind of notion that if you're voting for Trump, what am I really saying I'm voting for? Whereas in, in the community I live in, you, you get people routinely volunteering who they're voting for. And, and it's more like if you're in the other uh, camp, you, are, you're much, you don't want to inflame anything or you, know, you avoid the conversation. So I think that so much of the polling, it, there is an element still of, of what they call the shy Trump voter. I'm not sure it's shy as much as it is that there are certain things that certain communities accept, you know, and that there are other things that, and if it's acceptable, we're more willing to say it, right? And, and then the other thing too, that's kind of interesting, um, my husband ended up being one of those, that, just by happenstance, that was the, one of the ones, the polls that the uh, AP and um, Fox used to predict the, uh, the Arizona win uh, for, uh, for Biden. Um, that's run out of the University of Chicago. And it's, you know, they do everything technically, I learned to do with polling, but there's just something very different <laughs> about answering some, uh, a national survey that's going to kind of uh, 
you know, and I'm assuming they got him because he's voted in every election. They just kind of were going to track and they followed him all the way through till the ballot was in the mail, right? So then that's, that's done. But I mean, it's just, I think you're much more willing to, in some ways, depending on who calls up to be, and the only reason he agreed to be on the survey was because I looked up and saw that it was run out of the University of Chicago, saw that AP was using it. So for us, that had a kind of credibility. I do wonder, they also called our landline too. We happen to have a landline because we live on a farm, right? And we don't always have good cell service. So you wonder if there are not all sorts of things that skewed it uh, in, in certain directions in certain states. Before diving into your research on news deserts, um, I'd love to talk a little bit about your background. So you began your career as a reporter and an editor at various newspapers um, before eventually getting your MBA and moving into corporate roles. So um, can you explain a bit about like what motivated your career path? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I was one of those um, group of women I called homesteaders. I wasn't a trailblazer. There were the trailblazers who went ahead uh, about five to 10 years ahead of me. And when I got out of school, uh, I did what, a, what many women in my generation did, which was to start at, the, at a local newspaper. I had started after high school working for the, the hometown newspaper, uh, covering American Legion sports in the summer and anything else they threw at me. Uh, and it was, just, it was just an exciting thing to do. It, got, it was very different from being a teacher or a nurse or anything else. It was kind of uh, uh, an accepted career path. It felt like you were a trailblazer, but instead you weren't, you were actually homesteading. And what really happened to me, I went, I followed the traditional trajectory and uh, I was in the Dallas Times Herald, which the Dallas Times Herald no longer exists, by the way. And I, it was a great newspaper war in the mid 80s. Um, and I was on the city desk, a city desk editor. And uh, an airplane uh, caught fire in midair. It originated in Dallas. So it was a big national story. Um, it, it turned out somebody had been smoking in the uh, restroom, I think, uh, pitched. Uh, and so if you think about it today, you see the smoke detectors in the restrooms, the white lights were leading to red for the exit. All of that kind of came about from that fire on the uh, airplane. Uh, and I went home that day feeling really good about what all we had done uh, to match or exceed the other, the, the story that was uh, uh, being done by the competing paper, the Dallas Morning News. Walk, got up the next morning, still feeling really good, uh, and came into the office and noticed that the, the trucks that delivered the paper to the, to the I, let's call them, they were affluent, but the most influential suburbs were still sitting in the bay. And I realized in that moment that who won the newspaper war in Dallas was going to be determined by who made the better business decisions. There were two good journalistic organizations and who was making the better business decision. And from that, that prompted me, I called up a mentor uh, who said, if you care about good journalism, you need to learn the business. And so that took me on a path that led through uh, the rise of uh, the internet. And uh, at first, how you use that in journalism to connect. And then more recently, how you tr try to understand what the internet has done to destroy the business model that sustained local news for 225 years in this country. And why, if, if that business model has collapsed, how you need to kind of reformulate and re, re, reconnect in a way that builds a new business model 
because the challenges in the 21st century are very different from the challenges of the 20th century. And so how did your, like, how did your start as a reporter help you when you moved into those um, executive positions? Well, I think that as a reporter, you train about what's important, you know, uh, what makes for credible reporting? What, what is fact? Why do, how do you use data to then do analysis and then provide context? Because just a straight reporting of something doesn't necessarily give you the context or tell you why it's important. And I think I had a great editor who, in my first job, who would always say to me, so what, <laughs> right? What is the so what here? Why is this important? Why, why should I care? Those were his three things he would say over and over again. And that begins to tell you why it's so important as a reporter to gather all the facts, to look at it in, an, in some kind of analytical way that helps shape your story, to admit what you don't know, to put down what you do know, uh, and, uh, and provide pe people with options of this could happen or this or this or this. Um, the FCC in 2012 came out with a list of what they call eight critical information needs. So it includes th things that we need in order to make good quality of life decisions every day. But, and those are the quality of life decisions that affect not just us, but also future generations. So that includes things like the health of the community, the environment, education, governance, infrastructure, economic development, uh, uh, politics. You know, you, you can pretty well figure out what those are. And I think that, you know, as a, a, a news organization, we depended especially on local newspapers to provide us and be the prime, if not the sole source of that critical information. And what is, uh, and, and so for me, I think coming out with an understanding on the journalism side helps you understand what is at stake if we do not create some sort of um, business model that is going to sustain it for all communities. I, I think it's really amazing just the reporting skills and what you learn, um, I think on the job, I, it, it's amazing how applicable those skills are to so many different, I mean, basically anything you want to go into, um, you would build a very solid foundation and build the skills by, by being a, by being a reporter, I think. And it's, um, you know, and I guess that kind of leads to, to your research. And, and so you have, um, devoted a lot of time, um, researching. You've written a book about uh, local news deserts and just the, the decline of, of local newspapers. Um, you have a report that just came out. We'll actually put links to those in our show notes for folks who want to go read those. But, you know, what, what made you um, over the last kind of decade or so really devote your time and efforts to, to this topic? Well, first off, I was lucky. Uh, the person who had held my position, my, my professorship at UNC, decided to, to retire. Uh, there was a great legacy at UNC um, in, in, and in the school I'm in, the Hussman School, of focusing on local news. I think so often we look at news from the top down. So everybody worries what's happening to the New York Times, what's happening to the Washington Post, right? And in fact, if you look at the pyramid in our, uh, 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 in our country of the news ecosystem, there are only about three to five national papers. Then there are about 150 to 200 regional papers. 
And then the vast majority are what I would call community papers, which are the small uh, weeklies and dailies. And by one estimate, including one that the FCC use, as much as 85% of the news that feeds our democracy originates with those small at the very bottom of the pyramid. So for me, there was that kind of, there was that notion that came when I came back to the um, to the to the to UNC to become a professor, having been out as a as an executive. There was a notion that already I had I kind of knew how important local news was, and I think some people said, "Well, you know, you've worked at the New York Times, you've worked at the Wall Street Journal. Why don't you go help them figure out a business?" Molly, my my thought was the last thing the folks at the Wall Street Journal and New York Times needed was for me to be second guessing them. They had plenty of talented people. The people that needed the help were those that were down uh, and just focusing on doing the journalism. So the other thing that really concerned me was I came back, having been out of North Carolina for more than 30 years, was I looked around and realized that we were losing papers. Many of the papers I had uh, that I had worked with were not, or, or aspired to work for were no longer there. Uh, and that we were, we were consolidating in the industry in a way that was not good for local communities. That, that these large chains were getting disconnected from the local communities. And so for me, I started out with the notion of, okay, I'm going to rush right in and I'm going to help every small local paper that wants my uh, advice and my help on, and really sent students and uh, quite a few students. I think I last count about 500 students have worked directly with small news organizations around the country, both setting up digital sites as well as helping newspapers make the transition. But something else started happening and I started noticing it along about 2012, 2013. And that was a notion there was a new type of owner moving in to buy these newspapers. And that new type of owner had a very different sense of what their mission was. So if you know, as large as the old traditional newspaper chains were, there was always a balance between what was the civic mission of a newspaper and what was the, the return to shareholder, right? So you, 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 and part of it that was because it was very, very expensive to own a newspaper. You first had to come up with the money to buy it. You had to also buy a pr printing press, right? So there was a high barrier to entry and the cost of buying a newspaper uh, in even a small market was somewhere around 13 times annual earnings. So that meant you had to really set down roots in a community and own a newspaper for at least 14 years. Well, in the wake of 2008 and the huge recession that hit Main Street, the price of buying a newspaper dropped to about three times earnings. So in, it, with that kind of low entry, you had the entrance of hedge funds and private equity groups who did not have any kind of civic journalism mission, but yet had a overwhelming notion of shareholder return. So if you didn't make the, sh the return on the shareholder, you know, you didn't exist, right? You, you fell off the favored list for, uh, for being a, um, if you didn't do well with your asset management. So if you're only three times earnings, you can come in, slash costs like crazy, indiscriminately even, uh, and at the end of three years, if it's profitable and you wanna harvest it, you keep harvesting it. Or you say, hey, I've done as much as I can, I flip it and sell it to somebody else. Or if it just looks like it hadn't, it's not going anywhere, 
and you can't find anybody to buy it, you just say, mm, sunk cost, I didn't pay that much for it, I shut it down, right? So what you got uh, between 2008 and roughly 2018 is you had half of all newspapers in the country change hands, and more than half of those did it two times or more. Now, and as a result, because it's so easy to shut down newspapers or merge them or whatever, we lost between 2004, the end of 2004 and the end of 2019, we lost a fourth of all newspapers in the country. Uh, that's a huge amount, right, if you think about it. That's 2,100 newspapers. Uh, and of those, all but about 70 were uh, weeklies or very, very small dailies going out. So what we lost is the, the one way to think about it is if, if it's a pyramid with most of the small papers being at the foundation, there are huge cracks in this foundation holding up uh, uh, the top part of the pyramid. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, in your report, that that pyramid was really interesting. I, I found that um, very fascinating, and that's a very a very helpful graphic. And you know, my next question was going to be just about um, the drivers of, of this. And and you you mentioned consolidation, and I don't think people in Virginia know that um, you know the Richmond Times Dispatch, the Charlottesville Daily Progress, the Roanoke Times, and like a dozen others basically are all owned by the same people. Um, and they actually have changed hands. It was Warren, Bu Warren Buffett. Um, his group had them. Then he sold them. And I don't think people uh, really recognize that. But but I guess you know you mentioned consolidation is is and and the recession obviously had a had a big impact on this. You know what what in your mind are are the primary drivers of of this of this trend? Well, consolidation happens typically in an industry that's mature and on the on the the downside, right? So one of the best ways you can continue to make a profit is to just merge with somebody else. You cut cost, you know, you you merge the cost and you cut the cost, right? So in part, you would expect to see consolidation. What really happened though is it was so easy to buy large chains in 2010, 2011, 2012 that what you did is you get private equity companies coming in, buying this chain, buying that chain, merging those chains. And as a result today, uh, the largest chain in the country, which is Gannett, which was formed last year by a merger of Gannett and Gatehouse, the largest chain in the country today has over 600 newspapers in 36 states, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. All right, uh, so let's put yourself on the ground in, uh, let's say Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is not far from me, which is owned by Gannett now. It was, it was family owned, sold to Gatehouse, now it's owned in the Gannett Gatehouse structure. So suppose, suppose I'm a reader, and I think there's a problem with the editorial stance or with a, a story. And I mean, if I'm lucky, I can go talk to the editor, but suppose it's bigger than that. Suppose I'm an advertiser. I mean, how do you do it if it's bigger than the community? How do you get to the person who can actually resolve something for you, right? Um, my small town has a, is owned by, is a string of papers um, that stretch from Charlotte down US 74 to almost to Wilmington that have been sold and owned by private equity or hedge funds and uh, have been sold over four times over the last 25 years. And, uh, you know, there's nothing really left of those papers. The, the real estate has been sold. 
uh, the, the paper where I started out has been on the market. The building has been on the market. It's boarded up. It looks pretty bad. And you think about it, in most communities, the paper was either on Main Street or just off Main Street. It was a gathering place in a community. It's very depressing to watch grow by that building that hasn't been maintained. And all that's really left in, the, in that community that I grew up in are one and a half reporters, really, uh, who are in a rented space in a, in a building that you wouldn't even know was the newspaper. Right, so it, it is, and, and they have to work like the Dickens, right? Usually they are young people who've just gotten out of school. And if they're any good, they're gonna go somewhere else where they can get the, the kind of great mentoring I got, the great oversight and editing I got by having an editor who would say to me, so what, why should I care? <laughs> you just went to the county commissioner's meeting. What did you find out that I really care about? <laughs> instead of just giving you the facts as it was. Um, so obviously in 2020 in particular, a lot of things have changed, um, uh, including like the news that we see and the way that we perceive that news. So how do you think the COVID-19 crisis has impacted local news and the decline of it? So let me, um, let me uh, respond in two ways. So let's think that there's a, in many ways, COVID-19 is a thundercloud over local news, but there's a couple of silver linings. So let me go with the thundercloud first. Um, you had many newspapers who've been hanging on by a thread. So we have had the collapse of the for-profit business model <clears throat> and nothing has replaced it, right? So in that way, uh, we are probably going to see a continued fallout of newspapers and digital sites over the next two or three years. It, remember 2008, it took about three years to work through the system. Uh, and most of the newspapers and news sites that have held on, it was because of the payroll protection. So we're gonna need something that continues it. But I mean, most publishers I know are look, trying to figure out how they get through the next two years, right? Some combination of for-profit, non-profit, or some hybrid combination or whatever, and, and some public support. Uh, so th that's the, the, the very dark thundercloud. The other dark thundercloud is because we've lost so many journalists, it's been very hard for uh, us to know what's really going on. Uh, so I live down near the South Carolina border. Um, and I live in as, uh, two counties that are two of the poorest in the state. Um, the county just above us was owned by a family, is still family owned. And uh, they've been actually quite uh, successful at investing in the newspaper, growing that franchise and growing the journalism. Uh, I started noticing as I was looking for, for information in the beginning, um, I started noticing that if I looked at the New York Times or the Johns Hopkins websites, which were getting their information from state, health departments and the like, and the CDC, that it looked like there was only one infection in my county. There, if you looked over next board, there was maybe three. But if you look north, you saw there were already 20. Now, it, and, it all, and then it would take anywhere from three weeks to six weeks to show up on the Johns Hopkins or the New York Times database. Right now, 
when I looked into it, here's what had happened. The publisher of the paper just to the north of me had the money and the, um, the drive, the journalistic drive, that when he couldn't get the data that he needed, he had to threaten to do a lawsuit <laughs> for both the county health department and the hosp hospital. And suddenly he got the information that we didn't get. Now, I know in my county right now, as what, six weeks ago, they had run out of beds. <laughs> and that was even though they had taken the rehab and turned it into an ICU unit with 10 beds. So it is all over the place down there, but they're just hard to get that kind of information. So I think on the silver lining cloud is I think it has pointed out to us how important local news is. I mean, one of the critical information needs according to the FCC is public safety. This is a classic public safety. This is also a classic health, which is a second one that we might need. So I think that it has raised awareness among at least a group of people that we have some issues that we need to address. And that's been one of the things that has concerned me. I think the industry realized it first. We've gotten some policymakers, especially in Congress, to realize it but that the public is still largely unaware of the problems that most local news organizations are, are facing right now. Um, so it has been a real struggle, uh, one of the, uh, to get people to understand what really is at stake if we lose a local newspaper or lose a local uh, news organization of any sort. So that's a silver lining to me, is I think we've raised, begun to raise awareness in the public. I think the second silver lining is there's been legislation introduced over the last two or three years uh, in Congress that just kind of languished there. And there's now bipartisan support for several pieces of legislation. Who knows whether it will make it through this Congress, but at least it, it, we've begun to get bipartisan support to do something about this. And I think it's going to take bipartisan support to really kind of address what the issues are, and they're not simple, right? So one of the things that concerns me is who is going to own local news, right? Uh, and who is going to pay for local news, right? Uh, one of the things that this industry does is because it gets so uh, desperate, it kind of grabs on to everything. So one of, the, one of the things right now is digital subscriptions. Well, think about it for just a moment. Digital subscriptions is probably not going to be the answer for a news organization covering an economically struggling community. And many of those communities are not wired in such a way that you can get high speed internet if you went totally digital anyway. So there is a real access issue. And do we want to be in a situation where only the most affluent get good information Right. So what do we do to get the news into these economically underserved communities uh, that uh, the, the very kind of communities that need that information, that critical uh, information that the FCC would say you need in order to make wise decisions that can change the trajectory of their future? Yeah, so that actually kind of ties into my next question, which was going to be um, about the shift sort of from print news to more digital forms of news um, and whether or not you think that's 
exacerbating this problem or helping to improve it. Uh, one of the things that I, it really concerns me, our research has shown and other research at, at Stanford, for instance, has shown that, um, you know, the, the places most likely to lose a news organization are, have poverty rates way in excess of the national average. So let me just give you one example. Youngstown, Ohio lost its daily newspaper last year. It has a poverty rate of about 33%. In the U.S., it's around 12%. So if you think about it, that is, uh, and that's not unusual. Many of the places we've looked have had poverty rates of, uh, of anywhere from 20 to 30% uh, compared to the U.S. average. So that's one thing. The second thing we found is that, and, and the a Stanford study showed it also, is that there is, you know, this is a vast country. <laughs> I live on a farm and uh, I actually have high speed internet because it comes through an alarm company that put a, an antenna in the tallest pine tree on our farm. So uh, when there's a thunderstorm, sometimes we don't have good internet. It's also not nearly as high speed as the internet that anybody else would have with broadband. Uh, so, but I, but I can, A, have a pine tree with an antenna, an old fashioned antenna in it to pick up something, and B, I can afford to pay, <laughs> right? So even if you ha live in an area where there may be access to broadband, um, think of inner city neighborhoods, right, that are economically struggling, who can afford the 200 a month to hook up to the local cable? Uh, company to get that. So I think there's some real issues that we need to think about. It's not just a matter of saying, hey, here, we're going to switch to digital. Uh, and suddenly everybody in the country has all the access they need uh, to, to uh, and all the ability to get the news that they need. So that's one thing. And then I think this, the second thing is thinking about, um, you know, what it, what it is digitally that we really want, because uh, one of the studies we did is looking at the local news feed on your Facebook page. So Facebook shared data with us for February of 2019. And we looked at that very specifically of what you would get if you were in North Carolina, where they had the news feeds. And in, in that February, in September, and then we looked again in April, right before we published the article in the most recent report. Uh, and what we found is that when an algorithm chooses your, your news, you don't get a good diet of the critical information that you need. It tends to rely heavily on things like kind of weird and interesting crime stories. Uh, sometimes if you have a local grocery store, opening, you get lots of news about the local grocery store opening, right? And then, and then it's also this whole kind of, what well, I hate to use the word wackadoodle, but it's a wackadoodle human interest stories where you, you share, you post it, and because it gets so many shares, the algorithm picks it up. And that the algorithm is only going to pick up what's out there. So one of the things that is that some of it is not out there because we've lost so many reporters. We've lost over half of all newspaper reporters over the, between 2008 and 2018. That's 36,000 people we don't have at, in newsrooms anymore that have, have vanished. 
So first off, there's nobody out there producing some of those hard hitting or contextual stories. And secondly, it's going to pick up what gets shared the most. And because there's a deficit of anything else that's getting, that's being produced out there, what gets shared are the stuff that, that gets a lot of shares <laughs> that ends up the algorithm picking up and telling you if you're going to rely on your social media, here's, here's what's going on. So we're in a real situation now that in many communities, nobody shows up for the city council or the, uh, or the county commissioner meeting. So I had, a, I had a situation arise a couple of years ago where the local member of the uh, city council came up to me and asked me, how do you correct a story on Facebook? And it turned out she and the mayor had gotten into a disagreement at the local town council meeting and nobody was there to cover it. And the only account was what the mayor posted on his Facebook uh, page. So, I mean, when we say just switch over to digital, yes, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid in some ways back in the, when I first came here, thinking if you could just get um, news organizations to switch to digital and embrace their digital future, that was going to be it without acknowledging and realizing how difficult the infrastructure is when you're looking at digital. And then the second thing that has happened, and it is mentioned in the Senate committee uh, report that just came out last week that uh, Senator Catwell put out, uh, is that roughly 75% of all digital revenue in even the smallest markets goes to either Facebook or Google. So if you think about it, that leaves digital scraps for everyone else, whether it's a television station, whether it's a digital startup, or whether it's a newspaper, uh, for everybody else to fight over, right? So we're all fighting over the digital scraps. So it, there is no viable digital model right now. And it requires a very creative and very disciplined publisher or founder of a digital site to figure out how you put together a business model uh, that's going to support you. You brought up so many, um, you know, um, so many topics and things that, um, you know, because there's a big void, right, that, that's left. And and people treat that as it's kind of a content void and it's being filled by content, not journalism, right? And, and, and so it's Facebook is figuring out, you know, what is it that you like to click on and we're going to put that right at the top of your feed. And, and I, I'm just, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, what is the role that, what's the public policy role? Like what's, how should the government think about, you know, its role in trying to facilitate and fix this? Should it, should it try to, you know, build incentives to, you know, for a market solution or should it step in and, you know, I don't know, provide tax credits for people who subscribe to their local news or something like that? I mean, how do you think the, the government or, or public policy should play a role here? Well, I think there, let me, instead of saying how I think, because I, I mean, what I think is <laughs> about what you just paid me for, for my, uh, for my uh, uh, opinion, and which was nothing. Um, but uh, let, me, um, let me back up and talk about several of the things that have been proposed. And I think that, um, uh, you know, I think none of them address in a holistic way what we need to have happen. So let's start with the notion that the U.S., for being the vibrant democracy we are, uh, contributes a minuscule fraction of public funds to 
the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which then distributes it to NPR and to PBS. So if we lived in Europe, in most countries, uh, news gathering is supported at the national level and at the regional level. So uh, we only have it supported at the national level and to a degree that NPR is trying to fill the void somewhat at the regional level. But let's look at it this way. NPR has 3,000 reporters, right? They added 1,000. We've lost 36,000 newspaper reporters over the last decade. So it's almost like they're trying to stop the dam from breaking, but, and we want to applaud all that, but they need a lot more money if they're going to actually make a huge dent in that money. So first off, we have this notion that because we've been adequately supported by advertising revenue. So we, we didn't pay, to, I mean, our subscription barely covered the cost of distributing it, probably didn't even cover the cost of uh, paper, right? It, and there's, it, it, there's just a huge disparity. So first off, we got to come to terms with what do we feel about public funding? And if we believe in public funding, how do we set the same safeguards we set up in the 20th century to put the wall between advertising and, uh, and journalism in most good news organizations, right? So, and then secondly, we have to look to see how the policies we currently have are hampering the market. Right, um, and, it, and most of the policies we have are the result of the 1930s and are meant to address broadcasting, right? We're in a, and they don't address newspapers, right? Uh, because newspapers have always been looked at as just kind of solitary uh, markets, right? We've looked at household penetration or something else or how, some other mechanism that doesn't really look at the fact that newspapers in many ways became de facto monopolies in the latter half of the 20th century, but there's nothing to address that and no way to even know it with all these, with the consolidation of what we're actually even looking at. There just isn't a mechanism for that. We tend to think about monopolies as hurting you and I as consumers with pricing, but in fact, that's not necessarily what's going on right now, right? It's, it's hurting us it, in uh, the, the size of a Facebook and Google is hurting us indirectly because we don't have access to the critical news and information that we need because it has killed off, uh, contributing to the death of local news, right? So how do you begin to think about policies that encourage that? What do we see as who should own local news going forward? Because if there is a void, I will tell you, someone will come in to fill it, right? So in the last decade, the private equity and hedge funds moved in. Are we going to, if we leave it, we run the risk of large packs, for instance, coming in and setting up very partisan websites. And I would hate to see that because at least at the moment, partisanship hasn't necessarily gone down in most communities to the school board level uh, and to the uh, county commissioner level. So, you know, I think we have a lot of um, 
uh, a lot of issues that we need to grapple with philosophically. We need to decide, for instance, if you are a, um, if you're going to get a tax donation or tax credit for donate for for buying a subscription to a news uh, to a news organization, what does what counts, right? Is that going to be the partisan sites? Is it going to be? Uh, is it only going to be newspapers? I mean, what what qualifies for that going forward? So, I mean, I think there are lots of lots of implications, and part of it is we just have to acknowledge that we relied on something for 200 years and a business model for 200 years that we just got very comfortable with and as a result have done no planning for what comes when that collapses. It, it's such a, um, I, I just feel like that this problem is so, um, it's almost at the root, I think, of, of the polarization that we're seeing. Because you mentioned, you know, the, this decline of local news. I think there's, there, you mentioned kind of the, um, you know, the economic disparities in communities where this is happening. I think there's also this urban-rural uh, situation. And, you know, obviously we're living through this week where it's very clear that a large portion of people are getting their news from somewhere and the, the other portion is getting it from elsewhere. And um, it just feels like this is such a foundational issue for kind of the polar polarization that, that that we've seen well i think it's you know i think there have been some studies that show something a vast majority of the news that even circulates on social media is national and again that is the result of the fact that there is we've lost local news so if national is the only thing circulating or state is the only thing circulating that contributes to the polarization Right. I mean, it's you, you view the world through that lens versus thinking about what's really important, you know, to you and your your life and being able to separate that out. Well, Professor Abernathy, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, really appreciate it. But before we before we end this, we have one more question. This is the question we ask all of our all of our guests. And this is how we end, um, given we're a school of leadership and public policy. But what's what's a leadership lesson that you've learned that you wish someone would have taught you or, or told you as, as either a, an undergraduate or graduate student? Uh, you know, I think, uh, let me, let me reframe it. I heard someone say once about a CEO, uh, the real problem is he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And I, I think that the best leaders get comfortable with what they know and what they don't know. Uh, they try to understand why it is that someone has a different perspective and try to approach it not from an emotional uh, standpoint, but from one of trying to look at what are the, uh, what are, what is the result that led that person to this conclusion, right? And what other options would there have been? So I think that um, for me as a leader, I've always tried to be very honest about what I don't know. And I think that when I look at business or I look at uh, politics, but especially when I look at businesses, you know, when you talk about a new strategy, and why a strategy worked or it didn't, it always boils down to what were the assumptions you made, right? And, you know, uh, I have had quite a few senior army officers take a leadership course that I teach at UNC. And um, they say that after every mission, but before every mission, 
they always ask the question, what if? What if this goes right, then what do we do? What if this goes wrong, then what do we do? So I think what that does is expand the possibilities for problem solving when you've asked the what if. But in order to ask the what if, you have to be really honest with yourself about what's knowable and what's not knowable. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Professor Penny Abernathy, and thank you to my co-host Marissa Lemma. Thank you as well to Ben Teese and Ben Feldman for helping to put these episodes together. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.